Hello, and welcome to another episode of Chatter, a podcast from The Gist, with me, Josh Hamilton. My guest on the show today was the artist, musician, and dancer Cuthbert Artura. We had a vast conversation covering the legacy of slavery, colonialism, both historic and modern, cultural homogenization, Black Lives Matter, and the protests that sprung up after the death of George Floyd. If you haven't already and you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast and to our mailing list. And don't forget, my book, Brexit, The Establishment Civil War, is now available for pre-order on Amazon. You'll find the link in the description below. So, here's Cuthbert Archura. Water, hopefully enough. <laughs> so... Ready to go? Ready to go. So Cuthbert, uh, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks very much for, for agreeing to, to chat to me. Thank you. And sometimes you can call me Tura. I'm quite happy with that as well. Tura. Okay, that's, that's easier than Cuthbert. It sounds nice more <laughs> Does anyone actually call you Cuthbert or is it just like your parents? And when my mother calls me Cuthbert, I know she means business. And when I see a name written Cuthbert, I know that it's coming from either the taxman or somebody official. <laughs> Uh, well, I guess that's probably a good warning signal anyway for what's coming next. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, I want to I start by talking about your music. Okay. Uh, so what, what would you say is your, your earliest musical memory? My earliest musical memory would have been when I was probably about two, three. And there would be loud drums, singing, shakers, uh, voices, singing in Africa late at night to the early hours of the morning and people drinking traditional alcohol. And yeah, so my early, my, I was brought up in a musical family. So my earliest memories would have been when I was two, three, run about then. But that would be in African tribal music. Yes, and I don't call it tribal music because okay. because the, the concept of tribes is a concept that was created by people who did not understand the family structures of African families. So okay. yeah, it would have been traditional. I would call it traditional music. Uh, and because my family, my great uncle who would have made these events happen was a shaman. And he, he would have used music and all that as part of his healing, you see. So do you like to think that, that music can, can have like a healing, healing power, like physically, or do you mean more spiritually and emotionally? Well, um, I, I'm also mindful of the fact that uh, sound began before everything else, the word. So I do believe uh, wholeheartedly that music, that sound is the source of life, of everything. So in that sense, Yes, I believe that music has got that capacity to heal, to inspire, to transform, to create. Yeah. So are both your parents from, from Africa or? Both my parents are African from Zimbabwe. From Zimbabwe. So yes. at what point, did, what age did you move to, to Northern Ireland then? So I came to Northern Ireland in 1993. I was 19 then. Okay. And... Uh, now, I, I'm, I have a unique uh, uh, experience in the sense that uh, 
I come from a single parent family. Uh, I was raised by my mother. I didn't know my father. Uh, I went to look for my father when I was 18 years old. And him and I never had a relationship worth talking about. So he died in nine, sorry, in 2001 or two, one of those. So, yeah. So was that when, when you then moved to, do you mind me asking why you moved to Northern Ireland? What was there? Yeah, like a, well, a I, was, I, I was living in South Africa. I was living in Cape Town and I was, uh, so this was 92, 93. And my mother, who was uh, married to an Englishman, uh, were living in England with my sister. And my mother said to me that, look, um, we are concerned about what's happening in South Africa. And we think that it is best that you uh, either come to live in England or go to live in Northern Ireland with your aunt. Uh, so I thought, OK, I couldn't go live in England because I didn't get on with my stepdad. My stepdad uh, was uh, about 30 years senior, older than my mom. And he was uh, an ex-British army, an ex-British soldier. And uh, he was racist. And he didn't like me. And he created so much tension between my mom and I. So it wasn't possible for me to live with them. So I went to live in Belfast because I thought, ah, at least with my aunt, I'll be able to you know, to negotiate life much easier. <laughs> and do you want to do you want to explain for people who, who maybe don't know what was going on in South Africa at the time, what it was that you were you were fleeing away from, or what they were concerned so, about? So what happened uh, is when Mandela got released, uh, there was a lot of uh, uncertainty in South Africa, and whilst I was living there, there was um, a lot of changes that were happening. And I must say that because of my involvement with the with the ANC. Uh, I was participating in in protesting for rights and equality and the eradication of apartheid. So my mom knew that I was uh, vocal and I was uh, an activist and I was participating in in the movement in South Africa. And at that moment, we were at a very transitional point in terms of we were moving out of apartheid and we were the country was preparing for for black majority rule. So there was tensions there that were happening in South Africa in terms of the, the people who had benefited from apartheid, the, the white elitists, the white supremacists, they were not very happy about what was happening in South Africa. So that period, we were at a transition and war could have easily broken out. There were riots. Uh, I remember I was involved in a few uh, rallies that turned up to be riots. So 92, 93, and then 94, we had the elections in South Africa, and then we had black, black majority rule. But leading to that, 94, there was a lot of uncertainty, a lot of um, conflict that was happening in South Africa. So 92 through 94 was the period when they were negotiating the the like the future constitution and the that's exactly yeah yeah i i uh, there was two books actually i've read that, that kind of give me like a little bit of, of, of history and that was um naomi klein's uh not this changes everything the the shock doctrine so yes. she talked about um the implementation of of, of neoliberalism basically yes. in post-apartheid south africa yes. and how the the state had basically been sort of 
all the resources that were meant to be returned to the people ended up mostly being carved up and and being given to the people who who'd been in control for the past yes, 30 or 40 years you hit the nail on the head that is exactly what south africa what happened in south africa happened in zimbabwe it happened in kenya it happened in it happened in all the african countries that were british colonies i mean that 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 sort of model and um, the, the shock doctrine is basically like the history of the last 40 years as a as a, a battle between sort of people and, and neoliberalism through through the shock doctrine but um, we'll not like get too bogged down in that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but so, so you, so you left. You came. To, did you say ninety three? I came in July sixteen on a grey day, nineteen ninety three. Okay. So was that like your first time outside of Zimbabwe, South Africa? It was the first time outside of Zimbabwe and out of South Africa. Yes. Okay. Um, so that that's the, those are the only places you've lived your whole life. Was this like your your first encounter with like Western culture and and, and music as well at that time? Or had you no, been... I, I I was I was educated at uh, David Livingstone School, and from that name you can tell that it's a very colonial school. Uh, a, a famous person who went to David Livingstone School is Bruce Grabala. Oh really? Yes. Huh. Uh, okay. So and Bruce Grabala. He, he, he joined the army. He, well, he was in the Rhodesian army. But uh, I went to Prince Edward School, which is the old, second oldest school in, in Africa, in Zimbabwe, in Zimbabwe, that was set up by the British. Uh, and that was 1898, it was set up. Uh, so I have a very colonial education. I was assimilated into British system when I was at school. So uh, my school was a multiracial school, multi-ethnic, multicultural. So uh, at the age of nine, uh, I was socialized into the white world from a very, uh, very early stage. Okay. So, 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 you know, even the hymns I sing, I sang then. I come here, they're the exact same hymns, you know. There is a green hill far away without <laughs> a seat. You know, those kind of things. Yeah, yeah. So I am really conditioned into the white world from an early stage. So okay. when I came here, it was really no, it was no different. I, I, I just slotted in because I was already brought up in the British, you know, education system. Oh. Okay. So then, were you familiar with Western music as well? Or very. That, yeah. Yeah, because one of the things that is very uh, prevalent in Africa is that we are bombarded with American British art. The, the impact of neo-colonialism in Africa is frightening. From sports, from television programs, you're watching Dallas, you're watching Dynasty, you're watching <laughs> Falcon Crest. You know, you, you're watching, those are the programs I grew up with. And occasionally you had a program like Roots. Uh, but the majority of cultural exposure that I experienced, that most Africans experience, are really about celebrating whiteness. Mm, it's funny. Like, I remember when I was uh, reading, have you read Trevor Noah's book? Uh, Trevor Noah haven't. It's really good. It's really short as well. Um, it's just like um, a 
collection of stories from from his childhood. But uh, he he talked a lot about how he became quite successful as like a DJ because he was selling on the latest like songs and and sounds of of America from because he he had like acquired a computer so he was burning CDs with all like the latest songs and became like quite quite popular as a DJ just because he had all of these like new Western sounds and it mm. always kind of like baffled me a little bit because. Like any time I've heard, um, like any kind of of, of rap from, uh, or like hip hop or, or any kind of like modern music from from Africa, I know that's that's very all encompassing. Like Africa's Africa's fucking huge, but it is yeah. second largest second, yeah. second largest continent. Mm. Uh, but you, you get my point. Like it's always pretty, like the I really enjoy the the way they like manage to infuse their like modern like hip-hop or, or rap music with those more like traditional african rhythms it's always really cool so it, yeah. it kind of like it confused me a touch that that he would become so successful just by like playing importing like western western music like do you think that was because um because it was something like exotic or it was because like people didn't have the the capability to produce the music because of like poverty and, and apartheid and the fact you're obviously concentrating on like like overthrowing the 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 structure of an entire country rather than you know making making like top 10 hits yeah <laughs> oh, well it's it's it, it's the indoctrination of the colonized that is all part of the experience because you don't have to look at south africa or zimbabwe to see how that works if you look at uh, northern ireland for example and you look at the the period when uh, rory gallagher they were you know even even Van Morrison, they were imitating the music from America. Mm. Uh, and that is the, 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 the way that colonial frameworks work in terms of uh, breaking the culture of the natives. And, and then you see that the culture takes a back seat, the language takes a back seat, and that's how uh, it was possible to erode the language that people, native people use in schools, in education, in popular culture, in media. So it, this is not a random, uh, it wasn't a random situation that Trevor Noah was responding to. It is part of a global system of racism and cultural imperialism. So it, it operates in Northern Ireland in the most explicit way. If you hear Van Morrison singing, Van Morrison is a white guy who basically sings like a black guy. <laughs> now let's, let's be honest. He's a white man who's made money from singing black music. That's that, you know, that's, that is the reality. Blues is black music. Mm. You know, jazz is black music. And uh, this is how imperialism and neocolonialism works. It, 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 so you don't even have to go to look at South Africa and see how... Uh, the dominance of uh, British popular culture is on Northern Ireland. No Northern Ireland, even the south of Ireland. If you ask anybody in Northern Ireland, what team do you support? Tell you Liverpool or, or Manchester United, uh, cultural imperialism at work. If you tell them, if you ask them, tell me four teams from Northern Ireland, they'll struggle to tell you. Or tell me four players from the Irish, food, from the Northern Ireland football team. I'm telling you, they'll struggle. But if you say, tell me four players, five players from the English football team, they'll tell you. 
they'll even tell you the players from the American NBA dream team before they'd even tell you who is in the basketball national team of Northern Ireland. Do we have a national basketball team? Oh, we do! <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of guilty. Liverpool fan. What do you mean? I'm guilty as well as a Liverpool fan. We are all, we are all socialized <laughs> into this. Josh, we are all socialized. We so, are all... In your, so in your mind, is, the, the, is America now that like the, the the like pinnacle of cultural imperialism for are they like the are they the center of that for you now has it moved on for like for for the world and globally i mean well the 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 aim the aim and this is not my uh, this is not my opinion it's not my opinion this is by design and by design i'm talking from the time we we currently have a system that was developed from this year, 2020, it marks 465 years of that system. 1619? 16, 16, 16, 16, 16, 16, 16, so we're talking 1564. 1564, okay. What was the uh, American? Queen Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth I. Okay. So we're talking about what we call dominant culture. Those people who managed to amass wealth and create economic cultural structures are largely European and American because they, they were able to exploit other people to create these infrastructures. So this has been happening, this cultural imperialism has been happening since time immemorial. We're talking from the time they started enslaving Africans, the Europeans have looked to dehumanize, reduce African culture to subculture reduce human beings to subhuman. So you can see how the American white elite, the British white elite, the European white elite seek to perpetuate this notion that they are culturally more sophisticated than everybody else. When we know that everybody is culturally sophisticated. I everybody. Mean, well, I mean, I like pe people, I, I, it's weird I've had this conversation with people a few times recently. They've said, you know, Americans are stupid. And I'm like, no, there's, there's fucking stupid people everywhere. You know, there's people everywhere. It's the same kind of thing, right? Yes. But, but culturally, America and Britain are connected to the hip. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's something that actually concerns me a little bit post-Brexit, that, that um, we might start to take on a, little, a few too many Americanisms. Um, we have already. Well, we've taken on too many already, but I, I mean, I feel like it might accelerate post, post Brexit. Yes. And probably one of the fears that we have, both, both we share, is that it's always better to have a diverse uh, experience of culture than monoglot, monoculture. You know, this, this hegemony of American British culture doesn't allow us to, to experience the full beauty of what God has created, you know? Hmm. Yeah, the idea of monoculture is something actually that, that I'm a big Naomi Klein fan and I've been reading her books a lot recently. Um, but she wrote a, in No Logo, she wrote about the, the kind of corporatization of, um, of a lot of spaces uh, in Canada, in America and in the UK. And Who's this, sorry? Uh, Naomi Klein. Um, okay. I, I would just like, if anyone is, is in any way interested in just the history of the world of the past like 30, 40 years and understanding like corporatization, neoliberalism, 
um, climate change and how all of those are all intertwined, I would just go read Naomi Klein's work. It's it's just truly um, both horrifying and, and inspiring at the same time. That's it. Um, but in, in No Logo, she talks about this this idea of, of a monoculture where mm. we have um, like these global corporate entities like uh, Nike or Pepsi or Coke or uh, Google, Ralph Lauren, or yeah, now uh, like her book was written about twenty years ago, but it's 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 stunning actually the way that mirrors um, big tech now as well. She was talking about big clothing giants and, mm. and basically um, companies selling selling a lifestyle to you, mm. and and she was really like struck by 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 the the monoculture that that creates. And it's it's about like that it just homogenizes everything and dude. Um, and then she talks a lot about how um, first, like, for example, uh, say like Tommy Hilfiger was sold yes. as like a, a like a, a high end brand first to like upper class white people, and then yes. um, it became like a status symbol for people mm-hmm. in lower income areas, like generally like in America, um, black or like Latino areas where there was where that became like a status symbol for people to have like Tommy Hilfiger or one of those big brand names. Yes. And then that meant that the, those corporations who had been selling to like the, the, the you know, the, the, the elite white kids elite. had then, were then able to like, in a way, like, like make, make their brand cool by, by then selling it to, to like young, like low income people as a status symbol. And then mm. when it became like, I don't know. I don't know how you describe it as like hood or like, it mm-hmm. came, like, <laughs> Yeah, like in the most white sounding way ever. But when it yeah. became like that kind of style to people, then it was resold to like the white middle class teenagers as as like the edgy thing to be wearing. And, yeah. and it just like creates this like perfect circle where things go from from like status symbol to being edgy to then being a status symbol again. Uh, yeah, it's super like it's it's kind of depressing to to like yes. to, for her to lay that out because that was genuinely the strategy that was going on inside um and the conversations that were going on in in, in marketing departments but yes and and all it does is is as you say lead to this like monoculture um it's uh sting. yeah it, it, well it's it, it's also if we are if we are a society that's not engaging with itself in an honest manner and a society that is capable of self-reflection, and we we then have a situation where everybody is exposed so much to British American culture, and their own culture takes a backseat. And what that does to the memory of people, come on, you, you know. So that's why I think one of the reasons why I am fortunate because my culture is always and has always been central to me uh, my dance my music my prayer my meditation my rituals my initiations rites of passage uh, the sacred activities that my ancestors have done for thousands of years i still do them and i am lucky because my life is about culture I've put culture at the heart of what I do. So I'm lucky. But for the majority of people who don't have that, uh, that uh, platform or that space, the majority of people don't, 
So now we have a lot of languages that are dying out because people are choosing to use English. If you don't speak English, you won't go anywhere. So everybody must speak English. Don't speak your native language because that's not going to get you anywhere. That's the, that's, you know. Do you feel like that's kind of, kind of turned the corner in a way where the, where there are at least certain portions of society that really value little niche things like, like, I don't know, language and like little pieces of culture and art, like to, especially in like huge, like multicultural cities like London, for example, um, mm. where, you know, you, the more specialized and niche you can get in certain ways and certain things become like your selling point. That, that, mm. that, that difference is the thing that makes you stand out. Like, do you think we've got past that or do you think it's... No, I think we've got into a stage now where there's a very commercialization of culture. And, uh, you know, other people's cultures, is, uh, uh, there's a bit of voyeurism going on with people's culture and people's lives. I mean, I'll give you an example. There was a Sky News reporter yesterday who took a video and reported these guys, these refugees who are in a dingy. Oh, yeah, I saw the video. Yeah, I mean, I, I would yeah. have expected, you know, I would have expected her to get, to give them some help. You know, to those people, that dinghy was going to capsize any moment. Instead, her ship, the, 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 the ship that she was, the boat that she was in, was actually causing the waves for that dinghy. But she was looking at a news story. And this is, this, this is the kind of uh, state that uh, European media, media, and culture has got to where they're now desensitized. It's, it's about a new story. It's not about humanity. So you, you have a European and American and British culture that has commercialized everything about our humanity. So people can't make choices and decisions based on just pure heart pure hard living you know my opinion i mean it's encouraging to see the amount of people that condemned um that kind of news reporting with you know, but you know it still happened um the, <clears throat> when you say the sale you think that there's like voyeurism uh going on in in culture do you think that it's, it's like that okay perhaps that that diversity that i mentioned that niche specialization is is just it's not being celebrated as diverse for the reasons that you should be celebrating it is like for me it's, it's not that it's being sold as just this this cool like little thing that you should go see basically yeah well you know i i don't believe that there is an honest approach or honest integration honest engagement with other cultures other other you know you know they the other, there's real culture, which according to the British and the Americans is what they put on MTV and what they put on BBC stations or NBC or CNN. And then there is the other cultures of other people, other people. And unfortunately, the dominance of the media by the elite, the limited elite 
uh, you know, people like Piers Morgan, who went to, he's an Etonian. Uh, you've got a, a, a lot of people at Fleet Street who are responsible for, for editing news, who are, who are no clue, who have no clue of what the experiences are for working class people or for vulnerable people. So the people that are making the decisions right from Stuart Hall, the, the BBC governor general, you've got these elite people making decisions that affect uh, working class, vulnerable people. Uh, so it's like the decision that the BBC made over that report where a white reporter was allowed to use the N-word. And they said, it's okay, you can go ahead. And then they were told not to. But the BBC director generals and the decision makers are not capable of making decisions on equality and diversity because they don't have a clue what we're talking about. They don't understand because they are socialized into racism, into overt and covert bias. How much do you that 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 bias do you think is is still there in society, and how much do you think it it is like just the systemic hangover of of like years of of discrimination and and like overt segregation and and racism in history? Like, how much do you think that those like ideas are are consciously still there in society, and how much of it is the hangover from the system that that we used to have? We don't used to have a system. We still have that system. The the, the system that we have in Britain and Europe and America began to be created into what it is when the slave trade began. And so the relationships that we have financially, and I'm going to say financially, I'm talking about the house of Saudi, the house of Oman. I'm talking about the Arabs that facilitated for the British and the Europeans to begin the slave trade and the industrial if you look at the kingdoms that the Arabs created from slavery, if you look at how slavery plays an important role in Arab culture today, in 2020, yeah, there is an attempt to airbrush and, and pretend like these things have no impact today and they've gone. When in actual fact, the system that we are currently having is designed 400 and 65 years ago. So to tell you the truth, Josh, Britain is the mother of racism. We need to get that into our heads because Francis Bacon, because John Locke, I'm talking about the people who are the philosophers of Britain mindset. Francis, people like Charlie White, I'm talking about the theorists that Britain built its racism on. Britain is a racist country. The way Britain is run, the way Britain is structured, every institution in Britain is a racist institution. Okay. Right, I need to, I need, we need to like clarify a few things before we can discuss like further, just so, just so I, I can get exactly what, what, what you're trying to say and that we can have the best discussion about it. So um, when you're saying that every institution is racist and that Britain is a racist country. You're you're talking about the the like at, at the very highest level, the, the the entire structure of how the the country was founded, about how the the wealth that was uh, amassed um, during the the years of slavery and and afterwards with, with a lot of um, wage discrimination 
that all that wealth and all of the structures of power that have been built up since and because of of, of that history um are in then inherently racist because yeah because no one has sought to address or deal with the the massive like historical um social and economic inequities yes okay yes okay yes uh, and also the fact that um you know slavery was not banned slavery was reprofiled and rebranded one of the gifts greatest gifts that britain has is creating meaning and creating stories and narratives i call britain the queen of spin <laughs> because when slavery was banned in 1833 it wasn't until 1864 1865 that the other islands that were under britain's sphere of influence actually banned slavery in 1864 there was a ship that was captured in america that was uh, slave trading in 1864. So, 1864. So they stopped slavery because they decided that, okay, we will keep the slaves in their countries. We will make them work for us. But now we will also own their countries. So there was an augmentation of slavery. Once they banned slavery, they now decided to do something more heinous than slavery. What replaced slavery was worse than slavery, was colonialism, slavery. Colonialism and slavery, where they own the people into servitude. The people are servants and they own their land. The Berlin Conference of 1884 that uh, Leopold uh, called the, the, the king of, of, of Belgium, they had this conference in Germany in 1884, where the Europeans divided up, they divided up Africa amongst themselves. Mm -hmm. You see, then they owned the people, then they owned the land, then they owned the resources, then they owned the financial systems of these countries, and they prolonged this ownership uh, in Africa. And when they owned the people in Africa of African origin in their countries, America, Britain, they keep on oppressing Africans. Windrush, the British are still oppressing Africans. So, so, Josh, there's never been an improvement. There has been a rebranding, a very intelligently well-orchestrated rebranding of Britain's position in the whole narrative. And really, the situation is getting worse all the time because... The oppressiveness of slavery, it just gets rebranded. Slavery is still there. Only now it's been expanded. You know, all these people are glorified slaves. You know, no pension. Zero working hours. Zero, zero contracts. Huh? It's, it, it, is like, it is modern slavery. Um, well, one thing I do want to say that struck me um, it was something I came across during the research in my book, um, it, which was it was actually quite positive, I think, for you know the future of Britain. In that, um, compared to European countries, like attitudes of people, at least on like a personal level, like an individual to individual, 
Britain is thankfully, um, which is odd, I find odd, one of like the most accepting countries on like by percentage of people in the country. Um, in Europe, like it's one of the most accepting of, of like immigration, of um, immigrants, of people who are not like traditionally British. Yeah. Britain, Britain is, is, is not. I mean, like, what? Well, so that I think there's a difference between what you're talking about and what I'm talking about. I'm talking about just like on a person to person level. If individuals ah. were polled and asked, they're polled and said, okay, how comfortable are you with someone from your family or your son or daughter marrying someone who is not from Britain? Um, and then they pull them on like different like different things basically that they can that they they would be okay with and their comfort level with it and it is uh, the British attitude attitudinal survey and they do it once I think once a year or so okay. um, and it's basically it's used to to track like um, uh, attitudes to certain things over time um, and when you compare it to to a lot of places in Europe like Britain is 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 really like uh, on that on that um basis like far more accepting than a lot of wow. european countries would be okay yeah like i i like i was kind of shocked um, by that as well um so it's, it's, which which honestly like makes me make maybe quite positive about things because then yeah. it sort of suggested to me that that even though um there might be like systemic racism in um a lot of our structures and um, the, the the hangover of, of economic inequities that we discussed that that even though there might be racist narratives being tried to be used by the elite that, mm -hmm. that, that the people were generally not really on board with that yeah you see that's that's I agree with you there totally and when you get talking to people when you meet people you realize that a lot of people are in exact the same situation as the migrants mm-hmm like for me, for me, the real battle is is the elite, like the the, the super rich. The that is the real and 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 to know to, my own opinion. My own opinion is that we need a new progressive system, mm. and in that new progressive system, the elite, the aristocracy, doesn't exist. Good dream. I mean, like one of the one of the things I um, at the at the end of the questions that we wanted to talk to you about about some things. Uh, mm -hmm. If you had time, like fifteen minutes or so, uh, yeah, I've got yeah. some questions about about the lockdown and about the pandemic that I want to ask you because I'm writing um, my second book at the moment, and it's all about how I think that the the lockdown and the kind of the the forced change that we that we were sort of put into that that like everything just went from from complete normal life to like every, yeah. like civil liberties gone like we have to do all these things we're not allowed to go here bars are closed shops are closed like we just went from that to 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 like a, a situation that would have seemed completely unimaginable and sounds like some sort of really horrific dystopian future yeah like legitimately sounded a bit <laughs> like that right and then like okay people were angry and frustrated and then all of a sudden like people started to come together and and you would I, I find myself talking to like my closest friends more and like everyone seemed to have used this time for something really positive and yeah they, they took it and they, they 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 made changes in their life that people would have said were impossible mm. and people started looking after their garden and baking and yeah and just get getting more in touch with nature because we were all the, you know the only time we could go outside was to go and enjoy like a walk or something and I think it proves that people can adapt to some some really like serious changes, and that it proves that all the people that said humanity can 
like make a rapid like change to um, a more progressive, more equitable post-carbon like society and, and so possible. Of, like yeah, they, they they don't like in my mind anyway. They don't have an argument anymore. No. You know no. the, 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 that 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 the, the argument that people couldn't deal with it has been blown out of the water. We were put in this horrendously restrictive situation, and like we didn't just survive. We we thrived. We thrived. Yeah. So yeah. So so if if we if we have time, that that would be yeah. Good. But you know you you know if if people cannot change or or do things out of the goodness of their hearts, then trauma. Trauma and fear will do it. And I think fear of COVID made people make the decisions as well. And I guess the trauma that we're now going to experience, because now we're officially in recession. <laughs> and I think that's an opportunity. Because mm -hmm. now but we have to rebuild. We have to. We have to build. And what I'm saying to you is the system doesn't work you know you, you know sunak right mm -hmm. he's a billionaire right he's a billionaire i thought he was just relatively wealthy no no he married into a billionaire's family oh i gotta check this out hang on he, he married the daughter of a billionaire and for that reason you will not well not only for that reason but also for the fact that sunak is also socialized into a culture which accepts racism. See, Hinduism, yeah, and the Raj did so well out of British apartheid because the caste system, it, 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 it falls in line with the theories of race which the British were advancing. So when people like Priti Patel, people like Sunak, when those people who belong to the upper class of the Hindu class structure, you then begin to understand why we cannot trust Sunak, you cannot trust, um, you cannot trust Boris Johnson. I you don't cannot, think anyone does, but... But they're the people who are elected, they're <laughs> the people running the country. Yeah, unfortunately. So we must we must then always be aware that the system that we want is not going to be able to be created by those people. They are not the kind of people who can create the system. No. It's us, the grassroots. You know, it's funny. Um, the, uh, quite by accident, some uh, quite a lot of the people that I've spoken to over the past like six months have have a lot of them have been talking about about ways in which we can like fight back almost in, in ways that we can like try to reorganize our society from the grassroots up. And, and there's been like a real, it's one of the things I hope to write about in my book, um, is there's been like a real upsurge in, in that, in grassroots movements, like popping up or, or appearing or suddenly getting like a whole lot more enthusiasm or support, or, or they feel like re-energized to, to do stuff like, is, is that something you you've kind of experienced talking to people or am I just, you know? No, I think, I think, no, I think you're right. And I think there's, a, there's access to information now that is happening to people and people are finding out things, you know, about, about the government, about what's going on, about what, here, I'm going to ask you a question. 
Do you know that there has been an oil spill of a, a grave magnitude that has happened in Mauritius? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So two or three days ago? Yeah. But you are finding this information, you don't find this information on the mainstream media. No. No, there's a serious repression of, of any climate-related stories. There you go. So it's people like you, your generation, my, my children's generation, that are um, claiming, and that's why I think your generation uh, and the, uh, you're in your 20s, right? Mm -hmm. 26. Yeah. So you are more informed than the previous generations. You, your generation wants this to be a better world. And I think that is, that is the, the solace that we can all not rest, but we're, we're, yeah. guaranteed, we're guaranteed that there's a generation there that is, that is taking the, the bull by the horn and is challenging the older generation by yeah. doing things. Hmm. We've got no other choice, man. This is, this is it. This is the moment. Like, this... We've got COVID, we've got Brexit, we've got all these monstrous changes happening, and now is the chance to, to seize it for, for the betterment of, that's... of you know, our own society. That's it. But the, the hope is your generation... You actually making a conscious decision to say, "Oh no, we want to make this world a better place." We, and you are, you know, the kind of prejudice against refugees mm. and it's, asylum seekers. Yeah, like honestly, the the, the, the European reaction to the to the um, migration crisis in in the Med since uh, two thousand ten is is like genuinely one of the, I think like the biggest stains on, on like the moral righteousness of, of Europe. Josh. It's disgusting. These, these Europeans have been involved in industrial level of slavery. Can I give you an example of how modern slavery works? Please. So all the French speaking countries do not control their foreign, do not con control their state funds they don't they're still held over in by the french every country that was colonized by the french when they got this independence from the french they were only given limited sovereignty so what we call the sovereign funds there's always each country has to have a certain amount in the french banks always has to be you see, that is currently, we have that situation as we speak. The only country that was one of the French uh, slave islands is Haiti. When Haiti got independence, you know what the French did to Haiti. The Haitians have been paying a loan to the, to the French for since slavery was banned. So here, we are looking... What, what they are doing in terms what the Europeans are responding towards race, towards these refugees and the asylum seekers is not a surprise. It's not, it doesn't surprise me because the church has been so, you know, they have collaborated in, 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 in oppressing, in, in, in dehumanizing black people, in genocide mass genocide, in war crimes. So I know that when I'm looking at some of these countries, I'm looking at war criminals who have not done their time 
who have not accounted for their crimes. That's what Western European countries are. They are war criminals. They are the equivalent of the Nazis who have never, who have never owned up to their crimes, who have never uh, paid reparations or done any amends. So they are so full of arrogance that they have uh, this God-given authority to, to tell the world how to behave. Yeah, I mean, like you can't you can't really say that Europe doesn't doesn't try and at least try take the the moral high ground in the in the world stakes. They, they yeah, it's they dysfunctional. Mm. Europe is uh, dysfunctional. Right. I want I want to come back to the reparations thing and and about the the war criminals thing. I, I really do, um, but I do a hundred percent like need to ask you about about what happened with the Black Lives Matter march. Because, okay. Uh, that's that's why I wanted to talk to you, and I'm 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 conscious we've been talking for like a long long time. No, I haven't even, like mentioned it. So I want to get that out of the way, um, and then that that will circle nicely back around to um, your sort of thoughts about what we do with um, the, the grander system, like reparations or criminals related. So yeah, give us the the, the breakdown of, of what happened with with you organising the march, um, and and then what happened with the police afterwards. So I was not involved in organising the march. Okay. Okay. So I. I went to take part at the protest that was uh, happening at uh, Belfast City Hall on the 3rd. And I went there and as a participant, as a supporter, as an activist. And when I was there, it was one a few members of the community asked me if I could speak because there was, they appeared to be long periods of silence. Uh, in the in the rally, and it felt that there was a lack of people or leadership that could articulate what was happening and what needed to happen. People were angry, people were hurt, and they needed somebody who could uh, engage with them, but also offer them solutions. So I was asked to speak on the third, and I spoke. It was after I spoke that I was contacted by United Against Racism, uh, who organized the sixth and said, uh, we heard uh, uh, you speak on City Hall. Uh, could you please come and speak at the event that we are organizing at Custom House Square? And it will be social distancing uh, uh, rally. Uh, we will observe all the protocols in terms of the legislation on COVID. And I said, yes, no problem. And I agreed. So on the day of the, of the protest, I arrived at um, Custom House Square and I was greeted by a police officer who asked me for my name, address, date of birth, and personal details. Mm -hmm. And then he contacted his boss. Uh, when I told him that I, I was coming to speak at the event, then he spoke to his boss and told them who I was and what I was coming to do, what I was coming to do. So he then let me go. And I had only walked about 30 yards. I was stopped by a female sergeant who then asked me again the same questions and told me that if I proceed uh, on going to the rally and participating, I would be liable for fine prosecution 
Okay, hang on. So the police were taking first of all, the police were taking names of people of anyone going to the rally. They were taking names of people. Okay, so uh, so no, I can only talk about my own experience. So, but like that was that was the idea. The police were taking names from people names. going to the rally. Names, addresses, phone number, for, date of birth, for, date of birth for for contact tracing. Not for contact tracing. Why were they? For, t- like, what was the justification for taking all this information? It was the justification is that I was breaching COVID. Okay, so they wanted you to give all that information to acknowledge that you'd done it. That I that they had met me. Okay, and uh, they had met me going to this uh, protest, illegal protests. Okay, and um, that they would have my dis- details to do a follow up. Okay, right. Um, so you were asked once, and that was all right. Yes, and you gave your stuff, and then you went like another thirty yards, and then another police, yards. another police another officer thing. stopped you yes. and asked the same questions. Same questions. Same questions. And did you tell her that you'd just been asked for all this? No, I did. I, I knew she had seen it. Okay, and so she 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 definitely seen. She definitely seen it because I was there for quite a considerable time, you know. Okay, so then she said, "You." So she asked the same questions, and then she said that you were going to be liable for a fine. Yes, a fine or prosecution. Or prosecution. Okay, which yeah. from your like, did you see anyone else being like quizzed? Oh, I saw. I saw other people like being this? stopped. Yeah, and other people being told to turn back. Okay, loads of people being turned to turn back. Um, okay, I was told to turn back. Okay, right. And the set. This was the second rally. The first one was was not not like particularly busily or or was it busy? Because the, the only pictures I've seen were the rally in Custom House Square. So there was yes. they were they were the ones where they had the squares like marked out for everyone on the on the ground. Yes. Um, so the, the first rally was there was there a lot of people there? The first rally, the one that many people the first rally was actually one that took place at Writers Square. At Writers Square, okay. Yes. And then the second one was the one that took place at uh, City Hall. Okay. It was the one at Writers Square. So there was one at Ryder Square, one at City yes. Hall, and one at Custom House Square. That's right. Okay. So were they, was there like marked out things on the ground at City Hall? No, or you, at know, you know, at City Hall there wasn't. There was fact, at the City Hall, they got a bigger crowd than they were expecting. Okay. Yeah, how like how many like, people were, do you think, roughly? I think there was like 2,000 people who came. But, right, 2,000 people, fair enough. Mm. Okay. That's a lot for like during the, the time period it was. Um, yes. And, you know, it was only... A, it was only it was only a few days after George had died. Yeah, no, it was all very, very rapidly um, yeah. put together. Uh, yeah, think- but also people are processing things. Mm. And, 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 and what we... George came on the back of what had happened to Aubrey. Uh, uh, Ahmed Aubrey, the young fellow, mm. who was lynched by two... One of them was an ex-cop. Mm. And the Amy Cooper incident happened on the same day as, you know, it happened on the 26th of May, on the same day as George, the incident where a white woman weaponized her voice to suggest that a black man was attacking her and her dog. And okay. it was all not true. Okay. So there's a whole lot of things that were happening, you know, because in March, you know, he had uh, the young girl who had been murdered, uh, uh, Tatiana. Mm-hmm. So you've got this whole pain which uh, black people are dealing with and 
for all intents and purposes, the system, talking about the American government and the British government, doesn't care. No. So people have to find their own way of healing. And they were asked to come and speak because as a public speaker and somebody who can articulate the community's feelings, I realize the importance that people need a voice. We need to be heard. We need to, to, to share our pain with others so that we can find healing. And so I wanted to ask, uh, what, what was it that you think like caused this to be the moment of, of, of outpouring of, of this kind of like, I don't, I don't know. I don't even know what the sentiment is like outrage or, or, or just pure rage or, or just solidarity. Um, sadness like whatever that like collective outpouring of emotion that people were trying to capture in in the protests like why do you think this um this in particular was the moment because i mean i remember as far back as as the first times i was i was watching things about american politics um in 2012 um when i really started to kind of like pay like real attention uh to what was going on around obama's second term and um i remember seeing seeing some horrendous videos um just uh there was the there was the hands up don't shoot uh video there was the the eric garner video um mm. there was the michael brown video in uh from from ferguson like this like i i i i remember being like horrified at every single one of them um and then uh it's in some uh, there's definitely a trend in America, at least anyway, of um, the number of shootings by police officers mm-hmm. going down, thankfully. Um, it probably is. as a result of, of, of some of the pressure. Like, it's still like, it way too fucking high. I mean, like, the, the militarization of the police over there is, is a huge but that's, issue. But that's, that's a continuation uh, of the slave patrols. Mm-hmm. It's it, no, for, I, 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 I hear where you come from. Um, but the the, the the question I want to ask was like why why was this one the moment for you what what was it that, that this so why was this the one trigger? of the things that i've I've had to deal with in my own life here in in Northern Ireland is the systemic racism and you know I am forty six years old so to see another forty six year old man uh experience and go through what I have experienced, what I have gone through, but I didn't die. And this man died for a fake $20 note. And it, it, so if, if, if black life had a value, the value which their lives are to be Compared with black life versus the value for what he died for. You know, like if somebody dies in a robbery, you know, they were committing a criminal offense. But man, $20, which is not even $20. It's actually, hey, it's not something of no value. It would suggest to me that there is something wrong with society, that society. And I've always known, I've always known how racist, how dehumanizing the British are as an establishment. I know how racist and dehumanizing the Americans are 
uh, towards my people. I know how they they ignore me. They treat me as if I don't exist. They treat me like I don't have anything to contribute. I don't have any dignity with the, with, with the British and Americans. So I've always known that the only thing when I saw what happened to to to, to George Floyd, I just went through the motions of what I and other black men, other black people go through. It opens up the wounds. You know the experience, you, you the pain, you you feel disempowered, and then you go through the motions. And it's very regular that as black men, we have to experience this as a pattern of what the institution, white supremacist institution does to our people. It's a pattern, it's a system that is designed instill fear in us constantly. But the moment a generation of white youths, white people actually stand shoulder to shoulder with us and say, hey, we're not standing for this. This is what your people have been experiencing all this time. No, 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 no. We... And you only have to look at the number of young white people who came to that protest and the things that they were saying. You only have to look at the, the number of white activists actually challenging the British system in a manner that is never seen before. So I have seen the writing on the wall, and the writing on the wall is that the whole of society reached a tipping point. You know, and it's not a black struggle. It's really about people who are anti-racism against those who are racist. And, yeah. So you, you basically think that, like, because there was a lot of what you were saying there that, that was really, um, I was saying, I was just, in my head, you were saying things, and I was like, this this is so applicable to, to, to the feelings that, or this echoes the feelings that I know the people from, from, from mm. all, all backgrounds can, can go through that, that, especially at the moment with, the, you know, there's a, there's definitely a feeling of, of a democratic deficit that that people are powerless. That that like you said that they feel mm -hmm. like I don't like they don't matter. Like that they don't contribute. That they're not their contribution is not worth society, or that it, even if mm -hmm. they weren't there, that it wouldn't matter. Like that they 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 personally don't don't contribute, take, or, or mm -hmm. give anything to this system. And and that's 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 really like indicative of of honestly of the feelings yeah. of, of dislocation that 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 I think neoliberalism yes. just gives to people and and the way that that our system's set up. So you basically think that we've now hit a breaking point at which the experience is is broad enough and across enough, yeah, enough I think so. parts of society that 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 something has to give and that this is the moment that people have been. Do, but do, do you think it was anything to do with the fact that it was in, in the pandemic that that made it that 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 made it that big huge like worldwide moment? Do you think that that, that you know, would have happened if we weren't? Do you know? In the, I don't know, lockdown? but I tell you one thing that I know. Uh, there's a hierarchy of blackness 
It's when the American black people say enough is enough and they do something that any black people anywhere are listened to. It's the, there's a hierarchy of blackness where the opinions of the Africans and the opinions of the African-Americans, the opinions of the Africans are treated with such belligerence and malcontentment. Whereas the opinions of, okay, so talking about the civil rights period, uh, let's say 50s to 65. During that whole time, there was already African liberation wars going on. So whilst there's people like Martin Luther King, there's people like Patrice Lumumba, there's people like Kwame Nkrumah in Ghana, there's people like Nasser in, in Egypt. So you've got even the history of the civil rights movement. You've got names of people like Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, uh, uh, John Lewis, uh, Mahatma Gandhi. They are in the popular culture. And now you've got Mandela. Uh, but you won't hear people like Kwame Nkrumah, the nationalists, the people that enabled the independence of African countries during the 60s, during the 60s, during the 70s. So. It seems like the whole civil rights narrative is in America, begins in America. It's already happening in Africa. In Zimbabwe, we are the only country that took its land away totally from the imperialists. The imperialist still owns large sums, large land in Kenya. Most of Africa still belongs to the imperialists. South Africa still belongs to the elite families. You'd be surprised how much land the Queen of England has in South Africa. So, in, in essence, the, what COVID has done, it has exposed the injustices of the ruling class. And not just the white ruling class, the black leaders as well. The black people who are exploiting, the black leaders who are exploiting their own people in their own countries, oppressing their own people, uh, using COVID-19 as an excuse to slide in uh, laws that basically reduce people's liberties to zero. You know, governments are using COVID-19 to expose themselves and to consolidate their power. So, yeah, in a way you could say, but in Africa, we've been fighting this war for a long time and we keep fighting it mm. and it's ignored. It's not highlighted. The only thing is, if it's happening in America, if it's happening in Britain, it will get publicity and it will be highlighted, even though the media will try to sanitize it. Mm. I mean, when last did you see something to do with Black Lives Matter on mainstream media? I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't check out the mainstream media I, that it's, much. It's tailed off. It's tailed off. <laughs> I, I would... It's tailed off. Really? Like, I mean, there was definitely a lot trying to be made of it. Um, the There was, well, at one point, at least, Dominic Cummings and, and Boris Johnson were really trying to push the, yeah, they're racist. the, uh, the fake, the, their fake culture war, um, as, as some people describe it, like this, the, the sort of battle between, um, like, the people uh, on the side of yeah. cancel but, culture. But, but do you know who Dominic? Asking for things. But like they, they were all distracting they were. people with this stupid like. But you know who Dominic Cummings, Cummings is married so, to? 
Uh, yes, it is uh, the daughter of the owner of the yes. statue. Um, his name, name escapes. But they are linked. Um, it's Ma- Mary, Mary, Mary Wakefield. Family and imperialism Britain. If you look at her family and the link with the Raj, these people are part of imperial Britain. I mean, she's definitely not a. She's definitely. They a are the elite. elite. <laughs> and, and, and the, the, the thing yeah. about what you were saying there about uh, distracting uh, public voice and public. The, the BBC, you know, uh, the, uh, the Governor General of BBC, he made comments recently that the BBC is apologizing for allowing the N word to be used. These guys are so removed from reality and the truth. They cannot lead mm. grassroots people. They they do things for corporate. Mm. I mean, like a lot, a lot of the, the something that's that was frustrating watching um, this moment for me personally, anyway, was uh, watching how much people were getting caught up in in. You know the idea of the, the the fake culture war of people people getting bogged down in in censoring like specific words in a TV show or removing mm. certain episodes of something or when when like the real struggle is is not like you're not gonna you don't win you don't win this battle by by like having some TV shows pulled and 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 like getting the New York Times to change the the way they write black when they're referring to people like the you don't, you don't like everyone was going crazy over these kinds of things, and you, do, you don't win this this battle in my mind anyway by doing those things. You do it by like affecting really big that's structural it. change, and that's that's the, that's the only way that you, you that that we use this moment to address the real injustices that have given us like the, mm. the society and system we have now. But you see, you know, uh, you know, you know, J.P. Yeah, Morgan, like, right? J.P. Morgan. Uh, mm-hmm. Apple, uh, those are two companies, Twitter, they are going to embark on a process where they're going to change the language that they use. Because all of a sudden they've they mm. discovered that the, their language, because their businesses came about in a time of slavery and racism, their language like blacklisted, okay. you know, like uh, in programming, they use the word master, they use the word slave. Uh, they're having to change how they use words like that. Uh, now, what I believe is is going to happen, is going to need to happen, is there's going to need to be structural, organizational changes that that will leave our civil service and our government system so different from what we're used to. Uh, I know from my job now with the, I'm now employed as the capacity building officer for the Africa House in Belfast. And my job is really about building the capacity of Africans in Belfast, in Northern Ireland, so that they have the support, the skills, and the knowledge that gives them dignity and integration into the social, economic, cultural life of Northern Ireland. Now, it's, it's only now 
that a job like mine, I've been here for 27 years, and it's taken 27 years for the city council and the installment to recognize that the African community are undermined. We don't have a voice. We are not heard. There is white people sitting in meetings saying that they represent black people and that black people can't speak for themselves. There is gatekeepers who are trying to, to, to muffle, to muzzle the sound, the voices of black people. And, and what you notice, Jack, Josh, is that I'm so candid, I'm so open. I will tell you things that most Africans will want to tell you, but don't have the nerve to tell you. We are oppressed in this system. This system is designed against us and it operates in every level against us. That's the reality of it. So I wanna yeah, I wanna get your take on on, on where you start with uh so we've talked about you know trying to trying to rethink the structures of society. Nice <laughs> job, obviously. But like um where where would you like uh, where would you begin with this? Like what would your like if you really had like a, an ideal world, well we don't have an ideal world, but if you had if you were able to say, okay. Here's at least where I think we should begin this process. Like, what would you start with? We would start with a conscious decision and conscious choice to transform the institutions. To transform the institutions and have transformative teams that transform the structure of the judiciary, the structure of the civil service. It must reflect society. It must reflect the diversity of society, you know, in terms of sexuality, in terms of gender, in terms of voice, in terms of representation. The media, all aspects of human life, in terms of administrative, would have to embark on a transformational program. Really policy level, where policies that are pertaining to, to health, to education, to employment, they are operating as a transformed. And, and, and I know what I'm saying to you, the, the royal family did realize the need to begin to bring in a bit of color into their circles. <laughs> I mean, it kind of says something about our, our press when um, Meghan Markle is getting a harder time yes. from the British press for yeah. wanting a little privacy than Prince Andrew is for his association yeah. with Jeffrey Epstein and, and yeah. Jocelyn Maxwell and, and, you know, a whole bunch of underage... <laughs> um, no, sorry, a completely not underage um, no, women. You know, Teenagers, uh, but like you kids... See, one of the difficulties that the British people have is that it, they're drummed into serfdom. You've never met as obedient people as the British. You know, like the way they like standing on cues, the way they don't question uh, anything. You know, if you, if you show me the person who you are not allowed to criticize, you show me the person who has the real power. And 
the people that really have the power, the elite, uh, and I mean the royal family, and the the whole merit merit system, uh, is not a system that is fit for this generation, for this age. So I think if they were to be if they were to be honest, they would say yes, the royal family needs reformed. It's outdated. It needs to change its practices in line with the modern world. Uh, I come from royalty myself. My grandfather, my, my grandmother's grandfather was executed by the British in 1898. They took my grandfather's body. They took his head and brought it to the UK as a war trophy. They took many relics that we hold as sacred to Britain. So my, my grandmother's grandfather was not buried properly. In fact, the British just didn't end by murdering my grandfather, my great grandfather. They pursued my great grandfather's family and they ran away from their original place and ended up in Malawi. In Malawi. And this trauma that we experienced, uh, my grandmother only returned to Zimbabwe in 1956. So, so that was uh, from leaving Zimbabwe in 1898. 60 years oh, later, 60 she returned years. to Zimbabwe. But she was born in a country, in a, she was born in Malawi, a foreign country. But yeah, we have the trauma of having to deal with the fact that my, grand, my grandmother's uh, grandfather, my ancestor, was not buried properly. That the British brought his head here and they kept it and experimented and used it for whatever, but they also took relics of our family. And so today we are dealing with these conversations. These are some of the conversations that I am engaging with uh, people in England. Uh, there was a question that was asked in the House of Commons a few weeks ago, a few months, uh, say on the 20th of last month, there was an article in the paper, uh, which, uh, referenced the question that I'd asked, got my MP to ask in, in, in Parliament. So, uh, Stephen Ferry from Alliance. Yeah. Stephen Ferry. Okay. He's a lovely He's guy. such a nice guy. And he has humanity. That's why he asked that question. And the answers that you get from the British uh, Conservatives are what you expect from, from a war criminal who has never been tried for his war crimes. Who was answering? Uh, the British establishment. <laughs> uh, no, the Minister of uh, Culture and uh, Heritage. I forget his name. But uh, what, what, what I know from that experience is that there is issues that we need addressed in order for our healing, for our humanity. And the issues that we have to deal with as the people who have been oppressed and dehumanized are no better or no worse than the issues that the dehumanizer has to experience. So at some point when the British and the Americans and the Europeans have accepted that they are war criminals, which they won't, at some stage, we're going to all of us get some kind of healing so that we can all rehumanize each other so that we can all give each other a sense of humanity because we all have lost. 
Well, that's a that's a really positive positive way to to, uh, <laughs> to wrap up. Probably, although um, I I want to want to ask those 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 questions I have about just like your feelings on the the lockdown. Um, we can do them off the record if you prefer. Ask a question and I'll tell you. Podcast. Uh, it's up to you. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll run them by you here. Um, it's mainly just about uh, the lockdown itself and um, like what what it meant to people and what how people dealt and how you like personally just dealt with it. Uh, lockdown for me was no change of my life. My, that's how I live my life anyway. <laughs> the only difference in lockdown is that I took up a job in Tesco's. Yeah, and I was packing. I was packing um, shelves. Tesco's uh, for three months and I during that time I, I, I did more in those three months than I had done it previously I took up a uh, gardening which was my mother's favorite uh, pastime and now I have a greenhouse and I have lots of tomatoes lots of vegetables I never for the last Three months, I don't buy vegetables anymore. I They're all your own, completely homegrown. Homegrown. Tomatoes, uh, strawberries, cabbage, uh, beetroot, uh, microherbs, spinach. Yeah, so. That's awesome. That's one, like, one of the things I wanted to get into about, about the, the lockdown, basically, is just, yeah, did you find that you were, you were, using the time like the, the, did you feel it was a as a positive thing for you overall i the lockdown was no change to my lifestyle that's the way i live my life mm. um but it, the lockdown for me it, it was a blessing in disguise because right from the moment that they announced the lockdown i applied for a job in tesco's i've been applying for many jobs without getting any work mm. and I, I all of a sudden the lockdown enabled me to get a job in Tesco's because they needed people, because a lot of their people were going into furlough. They needed yeah. people to stand in. So all of a sudden I was earning money. I haven't been able to earn money for the last two years. Why? Because I, I can't get a job. It's that difficult. Yeah, I, I can't get a job. I can't get invitations to... You know the racism in this country, huh? I will break your heart. I, I can dance. I can speak Irish. I recycle. You can speak things. Irish. I speak Irish. That's amazing. I, I can recite things in Irish. I recite poetry. I can teach hip hop, break dance, street dance. I even do the oldest style of dance in Ireland. I can teach Irish people the oldest style of dance in Ireland called shanos. I still can't get a job. I still can't get uh, participation in events, festivals. Even though I am the only black person in the whole of the world who does what I do in Irish. So that's how, that's how racist I had to go and study law. I'm now, I now have a Bachelor of Laws degree. Where did if you I study? Was, sorry, Open University. Okay, that's cool. If I was white and I was doing just a tenth of what I am capable of, I would have excelled far beyond. Just the 10th. The, the kind of corrosive racism we're talking about is the kind of racism that 
somebody who is as qualified, as accomplished as me. I present TV programs on BBC. The BBC is so racist that it won't commission me to present a series. The BBC is so racist that it won't play my music on BBC because they say it's specialist music. Oh, that's the a travesty. You're, you're, yeah, I was really enjoying the, the EP you sent me, man. It was so, so chilled out. Josh, thank you. We live in a very dysfunctional, broken, racist institution at every level. Do you think the thing with the BBC is because the, the people at the BBC don't want you to present it? Or do, they, do you think that it's just like too different for their audience? Like, do, no. Which you think is just like no. their, their own personal um, prejudices? It's not their own personal prejudices. It's the policy of the BBC. There's a cultural policy of the BBC. There's a, there's a positioning of black culture and blackness within mm. the BBC. There's a, a code with which the BBC operates. And it's not just the BBC. It's the whole entertainment industry. It's the whole culture arts sector. Right from the arts council, the racist institution. I'm talking about that council in Northern Ireland and the council in England, in, in England and down south, the Republic. They want to oppress black arts and black culture as inferior culture. And that is what is part of the racist makeup of Britain, America and Europe. In France, they have a policy now where they are trying to stop rap music being played on mainstream radio stations. What? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't know if they've ever been to like, I don't know, Middle America, but there's like a <laughs> like <laughs> like nineties like hip hop music, especially from like from America, is like there's nothing but like middle class white kids listening to it. Like <laughs> yes, and that is what is me being one of them, like admittedly. No, no, no. <laughs> but you're right. You're right. But you see the. The threat of culture, you talk of culture war. Mm. You talk of how, why the loyalists and unionists are dysfunctional about culture. They have rejected their own Irishness to invent a certain kind of culture which is made up. So you don't think Northern Ireland, this is going to be a good, this is a good place to finish actually. Do you don't think Northern Ireland is a country? Well, not even that, but do you believe we have like, we don't have our own heritage, and, and we're attempting... You do! To, well, no, but I mean, like, as a specific country, do you think we're trying to, like, wedge ourselves into, like, this British-Irish fusion that doesn't exist? It's or... a colonial country in denial. Northern Ireland is a colonial country in denial. In fact, I call it Project A. This is the project where the English perfected imperialism. The first, the first uh, plantations before they went to America, mm -hmm. when Ulster, mm -hmm. they set up plantations. They, the Hamiltons came here. The Marquis, is that a Hamilton? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, and they set up the plantations. The culture of the natives took a back seat and was, was systematically destroyed. They banned Irish, they made it illegal, they banned the singing of Irish, they banned the, the, 
the poetry, expression, all in Irish. If you spoke Irish, you were cast out of this country. In all the African countries, the same policies that were done in Northern Ireland were done in all the African, because this is a training ground. You want to see how they, you know the RUC, you know what you call uh, when, you, when you're policing a uh, insurgents. Northern Ireland has written the rule book on policing a country under occupation. If you see anywhere, riot police anywhere, if they need specialist advice, they come to the police in Northern Ireland. If you look at the riot gear that any police anywhere in the world use, you look at the gear that they use in Northern Ireland. They have perfected the art of cattling began in Northern Ireland. Was it, really started, it was really started here? Northern Ireland, dude, Northern Ireland is the template on how to police a country in conflict. I mean, I, I would, I, I, it doesn't surprise me. I know that there's quite a few ex-police and military people from Northern Ireland who make a lot of money. Like doing consultants. Consulting internationally, yeah. Um, you, know, you know, the pangolin, the pangolin is the police vehicle that they use for, for riots. That's the, you know, the, what they call the meat wagon. Yeah, yeah. It came to Northern Ireland before it went anywhere else. Why does that not surprise me? Yeah, because this is, this is Project A. Northern Ireland was the first British colony. So, so they experiment a lot of things here. That's why I think even the issuing of fines to us is an experiment. That's why the House of Commons is going to have people like me speak at the select committee on COVID policing because they want to see how they're going to deal with it in the future. It's not a random thing that Northern Ireland is the only jurisdiction in the UK where these uh, fines, prosecutions, and mismanagement of legislation is. It's deliberate. This is the training ground. That's a very interesting theory. I am going to have to look more into this. <laughs> yes. I, I will. I will. Uh, yeah. I mean, I can't argue with that. Like, uh, the, I mean, it's, it's, it's a really interesting way of looking at the history of our country. <laughs> and that's the, beauty, that's the beauty of diversity. Mm. Because we can all look at it from different angles. Mm. I mean, I, I, I'm, people don't realize that Northern Ireland and Zimbabwe are connected to the hip. Why? Because Cecil, the chairperson of the British Rhodesian Company, was from Northern Ireland. I didn't know that. Nobody knows it. The, 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 you know, the Marquis of Abracon, Hamilton. He has a lot of he has a lot of artifacts, a lot of uh, things that were looted from Zimbabwe. A lot of relics. Is there any chance of getting them back? No. Uh, you know the arrogance of the aristocracy in the UK, yeah. I mean, they guess they they own it now. Um. Ah, there's so much arrogance. The only way that they can actually return those things if they get a plague. If something happens so badly that they're told that, hey, you know what, uh, the spirits of these people. Are haunting you, and this is why this is happening. That, that, that's the only way they'll return it. It's <laughs> COVID. No, I mean, <laughs> uh, nah. like Joe Joe Rogan and uh, I think it was Brian Callen blew the 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 Aztec death whistle on live on YouTube. 
uh, in the middle of a podcast, and then two weeks later, the first the first uh, the first cases of COVID appeared in America like two weeks after. So they've been posting videos being like, "Sorry, guys." Um, wow. <laughs> well, you know, you, you know that um, the, the in, in Northern Ireland is the only country where you will not get any stats on black minority ethnic people affected by COVID. Really? Is there is that yeah. just because the, the, the I don't I like I don't know what the black minority ethnic population of Ireland is off the top of my head. I think it's only like two or three percent, but um, Yeah, it run about three I think right now uh I think it's more than that. Uh you know it was one point eight at one stage, mm-hmm. uh, two thousand and two census. But I'm now sitting in Botanic Avenue and I'll say to you that the minority in Botanic Avenue is white. I mean, but that's that's a very diverse kind of like university area. Like that's not a good representation. No, no. Of, of, of but I'm I'm t- I'm talking to you now in terms of yeah minority yeah, yeah. ethnic people. Mm. So 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 I'm I'm looking out now into this into Donegal Pass, right? And the people that I can see, I can see one, two, three, four, five people, all people of color. Now I just see four white guys walking. Five white guys walking, a person of color. Yeah. So I would say... I mean, it's, that, yeah, it's definitely a diverse spot. In I would say that probably you're looking at the percentage of at least 5%. Mm. I would say even greater because I've never seen that many black people <laughs> in Northern Ireland. Well, yeah. I mean, most people... I'm are- telling you, I would say that the population is easily about 5% even. Okay, well then, then yeah, that's definitely a big enough portion to warrant um, COVID stats. I wonder why we don't have any. I'm going to need to... Because there is somebody sitting in Whitehall who thinks that that information may not be good sharing or capturing. Mm. You know, 40% of the NHS is uh, ethnic minorities. That doesn't surprise me. 40% of... So... Because we get My most job. of well, because we get like nurses. Yeah, so much of our, our nursing staff from from overseas. And I wonder why. Might... Cut the student bursary, make them yeah. pay like a whole bunch mm. of money to study. Why can't we I get enough? Like... Don't pay them anything. Don't give them pay yeah. rises like the doctors. Why? Yeah. Why have we not got enough nurses? I don't know. You know, but we've got a we've gotten a ruling elite that is diametrically opposite in values. Mm. Yeah, they say one thing and do another. Yeah, but, but the 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 level of diversity in Belfast now, I would say, when they do another census, they're going to find out that the population. I'm telling you, dude. I would say they are more than five percent. When is the next more, census? We got we got a census. I think we're coming soon. Yeah. We're coming soon to one. Okay, well that'd be interesting. I would I say, I would say, quote me on this, yeah. When they do a census, they're going to find out that 10% of the population is people of color. Okay. I will come back to you on this. Please do. <laughs> I will remember, I hope. Yes, please do. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, anyway, man, I'm going to go. Um, I have got... Take care. Uh, but uh, yeah, I'm absolutely about to boil alive here. So, and when you write your book, don't forget to send me a copy. Yes, I will. Well, you, you can get my first book um, on, on Amazon. It's available to pre-order. Uh, but it's not out till February. But the second one, 
Um, I can imagine we'll probably be quoting something from this interview, at least anyway. It's definitely been very useful um, for me and very interesting. Uh, I, Good man. I hope you had time. Um, and keep the positivity going. Got to. Got a, I know I was a bit depressed for a while when COVID hit, but then I'm I'm all zapped up with some positive energy that we can change the world now. So are you are you meditating? Uh, I am doing yoga. I don't meditate as much as I, as I probably should. Yoga, I find yeah. um, I find I just find myself sticking to yoga a lot more. Yeah, like there's uh, a thing. There's a thing. A Chinese um, practice, and it's called five. Elements. Mm-hmm. You can watch it on video. Okay. Five elements. There's a girl who does it, a Chinese girl. She's brilliant. You just follow her. Okay. Um, you know how you learn, but five elements. Uh, I think it's it's the most revolutionary exercise that you can do for 18 minutes, and it just transforms your mind, your physique. Okay. You know? I'll definitely check that out. Because I find, I find if someone recommends me something and I find a good course, if I'm trying to like get like something like a habit built in that I think would be useful for me, like meditation or yoga, I find that yes. I have to find the right, like the right course that will encourage me yes. to want to do it. And I also find it can't be too long. So 18 no. minutes is, is all right. Like the, the, the if at all, it doesn't, you, if at all, it probably won't even take 18 minutes. Probably it's called, um, you know, it's called, um, Taoist meditation. Okay. That's 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 really. I feel like I've come know, across that term before. Yeah, so it's martial arts as well because it strengthens your core. Okay. And it gives you and it develops reflexes. Because when you're really getting when you get into situations where you're being attacked, sometimes you don't want to think. You just want your reflexes to just. Yeah. Okay. Memory. Okay, man. Yeah, nice I'll definitely check that out. Get me. Um, when when I'm when I'm back in Belfast at some point, um, maybe we can do do another one of these in in person rather than over yeah. Skype. Um, I had a lot of, I had a lot of fun, and I feel like we've probably got still a lot we can talk about. Um, so you 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 broadcast your your podcast on a. It's on basically anywhere you will find a podcast. It it should be there. Uh, so it's on Apple, uh, Spotify, um, like all those those platforms. Like any any podcast app, basically, it'll be there. Uh, okay, so I'm going to investigate. Uh, I'm thinking of doing a, a podcast myself mm-hmm. uh, on debunking myths and opinions. Okay, well, um, I can. Uh, yeah, if you if you have any questions about that, you can you can email me. I'm well, I would like to know how to set one up. Oh well, yeah, no, I can I can I can point you in the direction of a couple of guys that really help me. Um, I will perfect. I can't remember the names of them right now, but I will email them over. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Um, thank you very much, Josh. No problem. It was an absolute pleasure, man. Thanks, thanks a lot for for doing this. It was a lot of fun, and I have to thank my friend Chris for for recommending you. Chris. Chris Taylor. Who's, who's Chris? Chris Taylor. I know that name from somewhere. Mm, I can't remember why why he knows you, but he does from something. Yeah. I can't remember. I feel like he might have taught like a class or something that he was at. Or... Okay. He's okay. really you, like, really I... tall, like six foot six. I know who you're talking about. Okay. Right now. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I'm sure he'll love the Thanks. show. Right? Thanks, Chris. Josh. <laughs> Take care. Take care. Cheers, Tara. It's an absolute pleasure. Right. Talk to you later. Take right. care. Bye. Bye bye. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast and to our mailing list. And don't forget, my book, Brexit The Establishment Civil War, is now available for pre order on Amazon. You'll find the link in the description below. 
until next time, thanks for listening.